All right, well, this morning we're going to continue on in our series, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Uh, if you are able to stand for the reading of God's Word, I invite you to do so while turning to Hebrews 11, 1 through 3, and then we're going to read 32 and 34, and then we're going to read all of Judges 15. We'll cover 16 as well, but uh, we don't need to stand for 10 minutes and read. So, Starting with Hebrews 11, and then again Judges 15. Hebrews 11, verse 1 reads, Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. Through their faith, the people in days of old earned a good reputation. By faith, we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command, that what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. And then drop down to verse 32 and 33. It reads, How much more do I need to say? It would take too long to recount the stories of the faith of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the prophets. By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, and received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions, quenched the flames of fire, and escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. They became strong in the battle and put whole armies to flight. And then if you turn back all the way to Judges 15, we'll read the second account of Samson. Judges 15 verse 1 reads, later on during the wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat as a present to his wife. He said, I'm going into my wife's room to sleep with her, but her father wouldn't let him in. I truly thought you must hate her, her father explained, so I gave her in marriage to your best man. But look, her younger sister is even more beautiful than she is. Marry her instead. Samson said, this time I cannot be blamed for everything I'm going to do to you Philistines. Then he went out and caught 300 foxes. He tied their tails together in pairs, and he fastened a torch to each pair of tails. Then he lit the torches and let the foxes run through the grain fields of the Philistines. He burned all their grain to the ground, including the sheaves and uncut grain. He also destroyed their vineyards and olive groves. Who did this? The Philistines demanded. Samson was the reply because his father-in-law from Timnah gave Samson's wife to be married to his best man. So the Philistines went and got the woman and her father and burned them to death. Because you did this, Samson vowed, I, will, I won't rest until I take my vengeance on you. So he attacked the Philistines with great fury and killed many of them. Then he went to live in a cave in the rock of Edom. The Philistines retaliated by setting up a camp in Judah and spreading out near the town of Leah. The men of Judah asked the Philistines, why are you attacking us? The Philistines replied, we've come to capture Samson. We've come to pay him back for what he did to us. So 3,000 men of Judah went down to get Samson at the cave in the rock of Edom. They said to Samson, don't you realize the Philistines rule over us? What are you, what are you doing to us? But Samson replied, I only did to them what they did to me. But then men of Judah told him, we have come to tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. All right, Samson said, but promise that you won't kill me yourselves. We will only tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines, they replied. We won't kill you. So they tied him up with new ropes and brought him to him up from the rock. As Samson arrived at Leah, Lehi, the Philistines came shouting in triumph. But the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon Samson, and he snapped the ropes on his arms as if they were burnt strands of flax. 
and they fell from his wrists. Then he found the jawbone of a recently killed donkey. He picked it up and killed a thousand Philistines with it. Then Samson said, with a jawbone of a donkey, I've piled them in heaps. With a jawbone of a donkey, I've killed a thousand men. When he finished his boasting, he threw away the jawbone, and the place was named Jawbone Hill. Samson was now very thirsty, and he cried out to the Lord, you have accomplished this great victory by the strength of your servant. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of these pagans? So God caused water to gush out of a hollow in the ground at Leah. And, the Sam- and Samson was revived as he drank. Then he named that place the spring of the one who cried out. And it is still in Leah to this day. Samson judged Israel for 20 years during the period when the Philistines dominated the land. A brief prayer. God, thank you again for your word and the way that you just work, Lord. We're so thankful, thankful for your spirit that moves, Lord. And we do pray that you prepare our hearts to receive your word. And we'll be careful to give you glory, God, and we're thankful. So, Lord, we do pray that you use me however you see fit. Whatever you want me to say, I say. Whatever you don't, you don't. And again, we'll give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have a seat. So if you're new with us this morning, or even if you've been here the whole time we've been in this series, we are looking at Hebrews 11, and we are slowly working our way through each character of Hebrews 11 as we consider what it means to be a faithful person. And what I find so very interesting is that Samson is in Hebrews 11. I mean, we just read an account that is a wild story. And and if we're honest, if we're considering people in the hall of faith, he would not be the first person that I would consider. But yet, as as the author of Hebrews 11 mentioned, that he is definitely in the hall of faith. And the more and more over the last three months or so as we've been studying this, I've realized that me personally, I have this weird uh, conception, I would say, of the hall of faith or the hall of fame because whenever I think of it, I think of the sports and you put the best of the best and they are enshrined forever and you really completely focus on the good that they've done, whatever statistics, stats they have. But yet here in Hebrews 11, what we're seeing, they are in the hall of faith, not simply because they were so good, but yet God was so good in them. So if I was considering the good, the bad, and the ugly, Samson had a lot of ugly, but God had a lot of good. So that's my hope. So last week we looked at the first part of Samson, and I think it's important, just a quick recap of Samson's Nazarite vow. Nazarite vow, if you remember, is laid out in number six. And it has three main rules to follow if you take a vow. These rules were to show, to reveal that someone was set apart for the work of the Lord. And the first part of the vow was a person could not drink wine. They couldn't even eat grapes or anything from the vine at all. So no alcohol, no grape, nothing. Well, Samson already broke that. The second one, they could not touch a dead body or anything that was dead for that matter. And the Jewish tradition was that the person became ceremonially unclean. Again, part two, Samson broke that, killed the lion. We just read he picked up the jawbone of a donkey. So he's, he's 0 for 2, but, you know, maybe he might get one in. The third one is, is he couldn't cut his hair. We haven't read that, but we'll get that. And, and this was a sign that someone was consecrated or set apart for the work of the Lord. And it was important for Samson to be set apart, to be shown as set apart for the Israelites Because the Philistines were so opposite from the Israelites. 
So as we were going through the first two chapters last week of Samson's life, I mentioned that Samson was always coming so close to sin, if you remember the whole, like, the gray area, almost about to cross the line. Whenever he was in the vineyard, he actually didn't drink the wine or touch the grapes, but why are you in the vineyard? He, he was so close to it. And yet, eventually, that gray area is what led him to end up breaking his vows. And I liken it to a ladder. I don't know if you remember the ladder, that the top rung of the ladder clearly states, do not sit or stand on top, yet we view this as either a suggestion, we ignore it completely, or assume that the rule or guideline is for everyone else. I had even suggested that sometimes the ladder's still not tall enough for people of my height, that you have to put it on a table, and still not tall enough, you have to put it on the box to get to the very top. Well, this apparently struck a chord with many of you because take a look at these photos that I received over the week. So here's one. <clears throat> I won't mention who it was, but they're sitting in the back over there. And then if that wasn't, that's extra. Yeah. OSHA, here we come. So, just kidding. So, um, we're a very, we're a very obedient church, I would say. But yes, yeah. Well, he's technically not on the top rung, but you get the point. But that really, I was I was comparing that to to the way that we think we are better than the sins of our past or present. We think that we can handle it. Even in the young adult life group, that was a topic of discussion last week that we had, and. And thinking that once you've overcome a sin, that you can go and face it without any fear. And I would suggest that it's not true at all. Of course, I always relate it to hockey, but I was playing hockey a couple of weeks ago and there was a guy, and he's a very young 70 year old who's a great skater and scores lots of goals on me because I'm goalie, so he makes fun of me. But he had mentioned, and he's, he's a believer, he had mentioned that. Every once in a while, he said this, the sins of my past tap me on the shoulder to see if I'm paying attention. And he said, I have to completely ignore it. And I thought, that, that is such a true statement. And then he would go on and say, I really do want to finish my race well. So as we see, the book of Judges is really a representation of Jesus Christ to come Jesus, as we see throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, we see that, that in different parts, the prophets, the kings, the judges are all a smaller or technically a minor version of Christ to come. Judges specifically is considered a mini version or a minor version, technically, of a savior. That's actually the translation of the word judges in Hebrew is savior. And of course, not a complete savior, a perfect savior. That's Christ and Christ alone. So what we are seeing here is Samson is considered a savior. I don't know about you, but this is a rough savior. Yet what we see in Samson is someone whose sin is just, he sins just enough that he builds confidence in that sin. It's that whole pushing the envelope, living in that gray area. Have you ever noticed that if you've ever got away with something sneaky, especially when you were young, it builds confidence. So you do it again just to see if you can do it. Maybe I'm the only sinner in here, but I can tell you, 
I, I remember, and I'll blame my brother because he's not here and he's a pastor and he's going to use the illustration of me. So we're, we're even. But I remember him going to a store and he stole the Snickers, like a regular size Snickers. He said, it was so easy. I'm going to go for the king size next time. Like slowly and slowly, he said, you know what? I'm going to wear the biggest pants I have and I think I can get a whole box. And of course, we got home and my mom made him go back and pay for it and, and all that. But just that little bit of like, oh, this is easy. And no one got caught. There's that old uh, Jewish prayer that goes something along the lines of, Lord, don't let me get away with the little things. I'm afraid of the big things. And I think that's so important for us. And yet we see Samson again and again and again just pushing the envelope and becoming more and more, sin becomes so normal, it's so normalized that what else would you do? I think it's important also to remember that the Israelites were thriving in the Philistine rule. That, that's such a key part of this whole story. Throughout Judges, and I think I mentioned this last week, throughout Judges, what we'll see over and over again is that God would bring up a judge right when the Israelites would cry out for help. They were under such tyrant rule that they were being oppressed so bad they would cry out, Lord, we've, we've sinned, we need help, and, they, and then God would send a judge. This time in Samson, the Philistines weren't as bad as the Milikites and the other people who were attacked. Again, they said, as long as you pay your taxes... You're welcome to join us in our debauchery. At the very least, don't try to stop it. Don't preach to us. That's a modern version. Do whatever you want as long as you pay taxes. So it got comfortable for the Israelites. And again, I think um, I mentioned this last week that when we read that the Israelites had sinned in the eyes of the Lord, this time, again, they didn't cry out because they just got used to being comfortable in a society that didn't push them back. Yet God intervened anyways. And, and what, what, I, what I think we see again and again is society kind of did this slow fade of morality in the Israelites. And then it's to the point where you say, yeah, it's not, not that bad. I would suggest that we see this throughout history, both for the Israelites and the Christians. That when a society that invites them, us followers, to join them and keep persecution to a minimum... That's when we kind of have the opportunity to sway. Then all of a sudden there's a flip and persecution comes and we're not prepared for it because we've enjoyed the fruits of our labor, which has been very lax. And, and even when you can go back to the book of Acts, we see that when the disciples were called to go out and share the good news, the gospels, they were slow to get out of the blocks. They were like, yeah, let's start here in Jerusalem so God sent in the Romans to persecute them, and then finally they had to flee. And, and I, I would suggest every time that the church is under persecution is when we thrive. But granted, I like when things go easy. I prefer, honestly, I prefer sweatpants and sitting at home. I don't know about you, but I'd prefer it not to be difficult. But then that's whenever there's a slow fade away. I appreciate it, but J.I., J.I. Packer mentioned in his book, Never Beyond Hope, which I recommend. It's a, he's smart. But he says, he says the, the, the essence of tragedy is waste of good, the nullifying of potential. And waste is a description of Samson's life as surveyed here 
And then he went on and say, and waste is a description that could be potentially used for each and every one of us when and if we get lazy. So many times when we get away with, again, that with that sin, it kind of builds confidence. And then what we see is Samson. So enter Samson. We'll move quickly because we're going to cover Judges 15 and and 16. But if you remember uh, when we left off on Judges 14, he he, uh, gets really upset. He gets mad because of the first lady that he he married again, which isn't Delilah. I know some of you had a shock face last week. He did marry two, two Philistine women. So anyways, he had this whole riddle. She finally nagged him to death. He told her the riddle. She told the other Philistines. So then he had to go and, and kill 30 people to give them the, the wager of new suits. So then he gets mad and he goes home and he pouts. We don't know how long he pouts, but he doesn't stay with his wife. So enter in what we just read in Judges 15. So later on, who knows how long, Judges 15 verse 1, during the wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat as a present to his wife. So this is his offering to apologize for not consummating the marriage. So this was the whole Philistine rule. If you don't do what you're supposed to do, um, if you do not follow through, everything costs a young goat. Because in the Philistine tradition for the first year, the wife lived at home with the parents. And then on the, after the year, then she can move in. That's weird. But so he brings this goat and he said, I'm going into my, wife, my wife's room to sleep with her. I know it's been a while, but her father wouldn't let him in. Verse 2, I truly thought you must hate her. So I gave her marriage to your best man. Ouch. And the reason why was this was the safe face. This was a, a Middle Eastern tradition. If something were to happen, good, bad, or indifferent to the husband or the husband-to-be, automatically moved on to the best man to save face. So then his, his response is, so I gave her marriage to the best man. But look, her younger sister is even more beautiful than she is. Marry her instead. Well, that never goes well. So then Samson said, this time, verse 3, I cannot be blamed for everything I'm going to do to you Philistines. So at this moment, Samson is reflecting on all that he has done, all of the the killing and murdering of all of the Philistines. He says, this time I cannot be blamed for everything I'm going to do. This is a direct attack on my pride. I'm going to counter, and then you'll see back and forth, back and forth. This is not true repentance. If you do anything out of attack, out of counter, it is not repentance. This is not him looking back and saying, all of the things that I've done in the past, I can't, I was blamed for, but now I'm justified to go and wipe everybody out. See, see, repentance, repentance really actually means a 180-degree turn, not just physically, but emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. It's a total reflect. I'm going to totally walk away from it. That's not what we see here. He's just so enraged that he's going to attack. So what does he do? He, he goes out and he catches 300 foxes, which is actually jackals. The, the Hebrew word means shackles and fox. Why that's important, because there's actually not foxes in Israel, but whatever. But 300, my first question when I read this, to be completely honest, is how did he catch them? And how long did it take? And did he have help? 
I am truly a first grader at heart. Why, 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 why? Anyway, so 300 foxes, he ties their tails together in pairs. He fastens a torch to each pair of tails or of the jackals. He lit the torches, let the fox run through the grain filled the Philistines. He burned all their grain to the ground, including the sheaves and uncut grain. He also destroyed the vineyards, olive groves. He destroys it all. Now, a couple of things to note here, besides the fact that there's 300 jackals or foxes. One of the main gods the Philistines worshipped was this jackal-like figure god. And they thought that, or prayed to, um, by burning and sacrificing children for the hope that they would have good grains, good vineyards, good olives. So essentially what Samson is doing is he is burning a representation of their God to their field. That's wild. Not only is he burning up everything, he's basically and essentially saying, I'm destroying the God that you, one of the gods you believe in. Now you can, and, and why this is so important is we see this over and over again, just quickly going back to Exodus, you know, those 10 plagues that Moses or God sent through Moses on the Egyptians, each one of those plagues, including the last one was a direct attack to one of the gods that the Egyptians believed in. So it's not only destroying what they held as value, it is showing that I can destroy the gods that you believe in. Like total annihilation. So you would think, oh, well, we've learned our lessons. Of course not. The Philistines said, who did this? And then they said, Samson. Can you imagine that scene? You know, whenever, who did this? And everyone points to the next guy to the right and not me. We didn't do this. So they all blamed Samson. They said, because his father-in-law from Timnah gave Samson's wife to be married to the best man. So the Philistines went and got the woman and her father and burned them to death. This was not only punishment, but a sacrifice to the God which they thought they potentially could lose. So do you see this tit for tat? I mean, this is extreme. This is, this is a direct attack on pride. This is just getting completely out of control. And I think it can be easy to look at a story in the Bible and view it. And, and a lot of times, I think it's real easy for us to look and think of us as either the victim in the story or the hero. And, and you, I, I don't know about you, but I hope I'm never like a Philistine. But the reality is, is sometimes I want revenge. Sometimes I, 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 I want to respond. And, and not, I've never caught a fox, nor burnt anything down to the ground. But in my mind, I, I've thought, or especially with my tongue, I've countered with maybe what I thought was a better point. But we see that, that it just continues to build up and build up. So really, hopefully, what we'll see is the, there's two perspectives, really, that we're going to focus on. The obvious one is Samson, but the other one is the Israelites. Because watch how the Israelites in themselves respond, going back to how they felt um, regarding just being comfortable in the society. Because we are called sojourners. This is not our world. But if we get too comfortable in it, we start to look like the world. So they quickly say, hey, it was Samson. Blame him. And so they burnt his, his father-in-law and the woman that he married. And then verse 7, because you have done this, Samson vowed, I won't rest until I make, uh, take my revenge on you. 
So he attacked the Philistines with great fear. He killed many of them. Then he went to live in the cave. This is, this is the response that Samson has over and over again. He has this great battle. He fights, and then he goes and pouts. But notice, this is the first time where he goes and takes out revenge, and it doesn't say the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. This is completely just a rage. He just loses his mind and kills people. So, going back, the Philistines retaliated by setting up camp in Judah and spreading out near the town of Lehi. The men of Judah, which are the Israelites, asked the Philistines, Why are you attacking us? Haven't we paid our taxes? Haven't we just let you do whatever you want? Haven't we just, we haven't caused any waves. We don't want to get in the way. The Philistines replied, we have come to capture Samson. We've come to pay back for what he has done. So 3,000 men of Judah went down to get Samson at the cave of the rock. Samson is their judge. Samson, remember what the word judge means? Their savior. He is their savior and they're quickly ready to give over to the mob. Where do we see that? Jesus. See, this, this mini version, this micro version of Christ is playing out. The people that Samson came to save are the first ones to sell him out, just like Christ. That should break our heart. But then he says, they said to Samson, don't you realize the Philistines rule over us? Don't you realize they're the boss? They're actually in charge? What are you doing to us? Basically, don't you know how good we have it if we don't cause waves? But Samson replied, I only did to them what they did to me, which is obviously not true. So then they go back and forth. They tie him up as if that's going to work. And then he makes a, a, the end of verse 12. He says, all right, Samson, but promise that you will not kill me yourselves. We will only tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. We won't kill you. So they tied him up in the new ropes and brought him to the rock. That's the, the symbolism of Pilate washing his hands, saying, I have nothing to do with this. I actually didn't kill Christ. So they tie him up. They make the promise. But as Samson arrived at Leah, the Philistines came shouting in triumph, we beat you. But the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon Samson. Now the spirit of the Lord is coming. Because remember, always, God is always good. In this series, good, bad, and ugly, God is always good. Now the spirit of the Lord came. And now he snapped the ropes. He kills everybody with a jawbone. Then he does a cool little song like, neener, 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 I killed you all. Haha, <laughs> I'm a winner, you're not. Um, well, you can read that for yourself. We've already read it. So he does this. And then drop down to verse 18. Then Samson was now very thirsty after he just whipped everybody up pretty good. And he cried out to the Lord, you have accomplished this great victory by the strength of your servant. Ooh. Incorrect, sir. You have accomplished this great victory because of the strength you've given your servant. You see how Samson has taken the, the, the pleasure, the victory in which God was doing in him? It's so easy for us to do, right? It's so easy for us to say, let me tell you how good I am. I mean, whew, I'm good, right? No, it, it's the Lord's doing. And this is the first time, there's two times, there's only two times that we read that Samson prays. This is the first time. First of all, he says, I'm pretty good, and you're going to let me die? Well, specifically, it says, must I now die of, this, of thirst and fall into the hands of these pagans? So God is very merciful. 
caused water to gush out of a hollow of the ground, and Samson was revived as he drank. Then he named this place the spring of the one who cried out, and it is still in Lai today. And if you go to Israel, there's still a little spring that's still there. It's not uh, built up or anything, but you can see where Samson drank water. So then it says, Samson judged for 20 years during this period when the Philistines dominated the land. Now, this is the story of Delilah. And Delilah is a representation, she was an actual person, but a representation of being pulled away completely by a society. So quickly, we'll just go through it and then we'll highlight some of the points in verse 4 of the next chapter, Judges 16. Sometime, well, sorry, 1 to 3, Samson um, sleeps with the prostitute. Um, he has a woman problem, probably another Philistine woman, and then enter, he's in love with Delilah. So sometime later, Samson fell in love with a woman named Delilah who lived in the Valley of Sorek. Uh, the rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, entice Samson to tell you what makes him so strong and how he can be overpowered and tie him up secretly. Then each of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So notice here he falls in love. Unlike the lady that he fell in love with before, an unnamed woman, he told his parents, hey, I like her, get her for me. Because that was the way. You couldn't set up your own wedding. It was the whole paying a dowry. You had to pay up in front. It had to be an arranged marriage. Here he just falls in love. Now that the Philistines see, oh, he, he likes her, we will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So at this time, there's five main Philistine leaders. And what they are offering is roughly $40,000. I mean, $40,000 is $40,000, but it's not like we will pay you millions of dollars if we find the secret. And again, I mean, that, it, it's money, but it's not, it's not at least what I would have expected. And, and again, I, I just looked at what yesterday or Friday's value of silver multiplied it by five, and it's Roughly $40,000. But have you noticed that unrepentant sin tends to devalue the relationships? That it devalues what we see as worthy? So down south at the church that we served at, there was a, a Celebrate Recovery ministry, and one of the men who helped lead that ministry had been clean and sober for 20 years, thanks to the grace and mercy of the Lord. And he would often say that his drug addiction made everything come under the rule of the drug. When something is under the rule of something like a drug, he would say everything has lost its value. He says, everything of value that I had before became expendable. He would go on to talk about how he would sell a big TV for an eighth of the price, sold his wife's wedding ring for a couple hundred bucks just to get a fix. If Christ is what you place as the highest person, the highest rule of your life, then he gives life to everything else. Christ gives value to each individual, to each relationship in your life, and that all that we have comes from the un, under the perfect king. But something like drugs or anything for that matter, if the drugs in this case for this guy is such a low item, everything comes under that. That's why the $40,000, we was like, well, it's only $40,000. 
But, the, but sin has just totally corrupted a relationship and a relationship he shouldn't have even had. So really, if you're sitting here this morning and you're wondering where you are at in just your relationship or if you're hurting, I, I would suggest, at least this is how I, I tend to do it, is I work backwards. If there's a relationship that you've seen that is undervalued, or something that you've been blessed by, that you are devaluing, where have you placed Christ at in that relationship? Is he the pinnacle of, of the top of your, the, the, the everything to you? Because if he's not, then something else takes its place. And nothing is greater than Christ, so then everything else falls lower and lower. And that's what we see. That's why Samson was so quickly able to move on to the next woman who would sell him out for $40,000 worth of silver. You see that? It's just, we have to be careful in the way that we look at Christ, place Christ, and then all of the relationships from there. So as we just... just Considering that, as you work through that, if, if, if you're sitting here and there's any hurts and you're, not, you're thinking, I don't want to get revenge anymore, I no, no more tick for tat, none of that, where do you place that person within the relationship of Christ? So with that, just considering that. So, so then Delilah said to Samson in verse 6, Please tell me what makes you so strong and what it would take to tie you up securely. And Samson replied, if I were tied up with seven new bowstrings that have not yet been dried, I would become as weak as anyone else. Well, no, you're lying. Now, if you're sitting here wondering, why is Samson even discussing this with her? You're not alone. But again, think about how arrogant you can become within your sin. I can handle this. So he's not even telling her the truth. And what we'll see is that he will get closer and closer to the truth, but he's just simply just blowing her off lying. So then the Philistine rulers brought Delilah the seven new bowstrings. And then in verse 9, she cries out, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. Or NLT says, the Philistines have come to capture you. But Samson snapped the bowstrings as a piece of string snaps when burning fire. So secretly, his strength was not discovered. So verse 10, afterward, Delilah said to him, you've been making fun of me and telling me lies. Now, please tell me you have been how to tie you up. Again, manipulation. And then the whole thing, he says, new ropes. If you use new ropes, so she ties him up with new ropes. I'm not quite sure how that works, but she tied him up, I guess, when he's sleeping. And then the same thing. Verse 12 in the middle, it says, Samson, the Philistines have come to capture you. But again, Samson snaps the ropes from his arms as if they were thread. Verse 13, you've been making fun of me and telling me lies. Now tell me how you can be tied up secretly. And then Samson replies, if you were to weave the seven braids of my hair into fabric on your loom and tighten it with the loom shuttle, I would become as weak as anyone else. You see that he's getting closer and closer to telling her the truth. Although in reality, it's not his hair that's giving him its strength. It's his relationship with Christ. Again, the hair is only a representation of the vow that he's taking. He's getting closer and closer to revealing what he believes is his strength. He is so confident that he can manage his sin. And I can honestly say... I have never been sorry when I said no to sin. Never. 
I never said, no, I don't want to do that and think, man, you know, I really wish I would do that. I have always been sorry when I considered it, regardless of what the sin is, and thinking I could handle it. Well, you know, and going back to what the guy I play hockey with, you know, sins of your past tap you on the shoulder and just to see if you're interested. And specifically, the Bible tells us to flee from sin. If you look at 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18, it says, Paul says, run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. 2 Timothy 2.22 says, run. Specifically, the word is flee from anything that stimulates youthful lusts. Instead, pursue righteous living, faithfulness, love, and peace. Enjoy the companionship of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts. Not run, flee. The word flee means run without looking back. It means don't even consider what you're running from. And to be clear, when Paul is telling Timothy this specifically, when he says run from or flee from anything that stimulates youthful lust, again, he's not. this is not just a... Uh, saying because you're young. This is saying even if you're old, and I won't say what old is. You deter- if you're over 100, you're old, whatever. I'm not getting in trouble, Mark, this time, all right? So uh, it's just saying, again, that youthful, the, the sins of your past can come back. But, it said, but very specifically, instead, you must pursue righteous living, faithfulness, love, and peace. So when you are fleeing from something, you have to run to something. You can't just run wildly away. Because then you end up running in a circle. So specifically, what you should run for is righteous living, faithfulness, love, and peace. And enjoy the companionship of those who call the Lord. While you are running and fleeing, you must do it with someone else. You should do it with someone else. I continually tell younger people who are considering getting married, run after the Lord as fast and as hard as you can and look around to see who's running with you and marry that person. Don't look back. Marry the person that's running with you. So then again, Delilah is crazy and she weaves a rug out of his hair. I mean, that's essentially what she's doing, which is weird. Um, and, and, and really, looking through what a lot of the smart people throughout history, the commentators were mentioning, is that when, when, when putting together this fabric, this rug with his hair, it is depleting the strength, ideally, and turning it into something it was never meant to be. And that's exactly what sin does. So then again, she says, Samson, uh, the Philistines have come captured you. But Samson woke up, pulled back the loom shuttle, yanked his hair from the loom. And then he's all, whoo, and knocking everybody out with it. And in verse 15, Delilah pouted. How can you tell me I love you when you don't share your secrets with me? You have made fun of me three times now, and you still haven't told me what makes you so strong. She tormented him with her nagging day after day until he was sick to death of it. I don't think I have to give you an application or a spiritual connection or any biblical reference. You see exactly what's happening here. You said you love me. Tell me. So she tormented him and finally he gave in because he is so bothered with it. 
And finally, Samson shared his secret. My hair has never been cut, he confessed, for I was dedicated to God as a Nazarite from birth. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me, and I would become weak as anyone else. Is this true? Yes, but no. His strength is not, again, from his hair. It's his relationship with Christ. His hair is a representation of that relationship with Christ. Verse 18, Delilah realized he had finally told her the truth, so she sent for the Philistine rulers. Come back one more time, she said, for he has finally told me a secret. So the Philistine rulers returned with the money in their hands. Delilah lulled Samson to sleep with his head in her lap, and then she called and a man to shave off the seven locks of his hair. Seven, again, represents perfect completion. He, he at one point, had a, such a close relationship with the Lord that it would be considered perfect. I don't know how you get your hair cut and not wake up, but, hey, it worked. And in this way, she began to bring him down. Notice that it says, she brought him down. Sin brought him down. And his strength left him. And then she cried out, Samson, the Philistines have come to capture you. When he woke up, he thought, I will do as before, shake myself free. And one of the saddest lines in all of the Bible, but he didn't realize the Lord had left him. Considering the devaluing of a relationship, the ultimate way to know if, if you are devaluing a relationship is if you have ignored that relationship long enough or dismissed it long enough that when it's actually gone, you don't notice a difference. Perhaps you see this with your own children or when you were a child, you wash your kids' clothes or specifically when you were little, your mom washed your clothes and did your laundry and all you did is just open up your drawer or go in your closet and got dressed and you never even considered how the clothes got there. And then one day, your mom stops doing your clothes, and you, don't, and you notice the clothes are missing, but you've never considered why the clothes were there in the first place. Or perhaps it's with a spouse. There's something they continually do for you that you no longer appreciate. You don't even notice that they do it anymore. It, and then it moves to a simple expectation to something that just happens, and then one day you wake up, and the coffee isn't already brewed, and you thought, huh. I wonder how the coffee used to get there. I, of course, am not talking about Natalie. <laughs> but you know those things, those relationships that you just assume is always going to be there, but you don't pay attention enough? And that's what we see. That's what sin does. Sin pulls you away first to Christ. That's why David said, I've sinned against the Lord, and it, sin always happens against the Lord first. And then finally, again, but he didn't realize the Lord had left him. The Lord is so gracious and so merciful that he will allow us to go to the full extent of sin if that's what it takes for us to come back. Of course, ideally, we want to, we think, run. Why didn't the Lord say, hey, dum-dum? What are you doing? No, he, he allowed him because over and over again, this is over the cross. We, he's probably now around roughly 60 years old. And he's had a lifetime of ups and downs with the Lord. And finally, he is just totally surrendered into his sin. So verse 21, the Philistines capture him, gouge out of his eyes, which specifically 
They heated up a spoon and dug those bad boys out. They took him to Gaza where he was bound with bronze chains and forced to grind grain in prison and people would watch him do it like a mule. But before long, his hair began to grow back. And this is the foolishness of the Philistines. And then, Sam, and then verse 23, the Philistines rulers had a, held a great festival offering sacrifices and praise, praising their god Dagon. Dagon was uh, the man that had a fish head, wings, and he was uh, in control of the other gods mostly. Uh, he was the god of drinking. Um, so, and then they said, our God, the rest of 23, our God has given us victory over the enemy Samson. When the people saw him, they praised their God saying, our God has delivered our enemy to us. The one who killed so many of us is now our power. Half drunk by now, the people demanded, bring out Samson so he can amuse us. So he's brought out of the prison to amuse them. And they had him stand between the pillars supporting the roof. And the way that they would amuse him is probably strip him naked and just have him walk as they threw things at him. So verse 26, Samson said to the young servant who was leading him by the hand, place my hands against the pillars that hold up the temple. I want to rest against him. Now the temple was completely filled with people. All the Philistine rulers were there and there were about 3,000 men and women on the rooftop who were watching as Samson amused it. Think of a coliseum with a roof, with an opening. So they were all standing and looking and watching at him as he's walking around. Then Samson, here's his second prayer, the second time he's prayed. Verse 28, then Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me again. Let's just stop right there. That can always be your prayer. Always. You are not too far removed in your sin to pray that prayer. Remember that. Always you can pray that prayer. Sovereign Lord, remember me again. And he says, oh God, please strengthen me just one more time. With one blow, let me pay back the Philistines for the loss of my two eyes. Granted, it's a little self-serving prayer, but if I'm honest, my prayers can be a little self-serving too. Then Samson put his hands in the two center pillars that held up the temple, pushing against them with both hands. He prayed, let me die with the Philistines. And the temple crashed down and the Philistine rulers and all the people. So he killed more people when he died than he did during his entire lifetime. And verse 31, verse 31 links to part of his problem. It says later his brothers and other relatives went down to get his body. This is the first time we hear of his brother's he has been so wildly entrenched in his own strength, his own abilities, that he's left everybody that's been important behind. I've noticed, at least in my life and as a pastor, when you or when I see other people leave a relationship, leave behind brothers and sisters in the Lord, leave the relatives, it's never good. So if you haven't heard from someone in a while, call them up. So they took him back home, buried him between Zorah and Estol, where his father Manoah was buried. Samson judged Israel for 20 years. So this is another 20 years. So we see this hurt, this pride. We see so much of this retaliation. We see the fact that, that, that this is a representation again of Christ's death on the cross. Yet Christ rose again, but Samson was the kind of man that came to a tragic end 
He had now vowed to make one final act of vengeance. But again, he cried out to the Lord. And before, before we get too critical, I would suggest, because I think it's easy to get critical of Samson and just shake her head, the lack of potential. Hebrews 11, and this is the first time we've read this throughout the series. Hebrews 11, verse 38, and I'll read the ESV. I think it, it, it does a great job of describing it. Hebrews 11, after it gives this whole list that we've been reading of all these faithful people, men and women, it says, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in the desert and the mountains and in dens and in caves and the earth. The men and women in Hebrews 11 were not worthy, the world was not worthy of having them with their faith. And that can be said of anyone. We are not worthy of, our, of the grace and mercy of the Lord. We're not worthy of one another who are in Christ. Yet all the glory goes to Christ alone. So again, just a few takeaways. Don't, when you read through the scripture, don't look at the person, the hero, that you're always the hero or you are always the victim. More times than not, we are all of the characters all wrapped in one. You'll never be sorry for saying no to sin. Don't entertain it. An invitation to potential sin. Again, when Delilah said, what, where's your strength come from? He should have just said, it comes from the Lord and walked away. And then again, I've noticed that the sins of my past occasionally will tap me on the shoulder. But if repentance is completely fleeing and walking towards something else. And again, specifically, while you are fleeing the sins, run to the person who's able to handle them with Christ. And again, as 2 Timothy 2.22 says, with other people. We're going to sing a few more songs uh, at worshiping the Lord. We are going to receive communion this morning. You are welcome to receive communion if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. And as you receive the elements, some of the guys will come and pass them out. Over the next couple of songs, just consider where you where Christ is at in your life. Um, perhaps you you may be like Samson, and 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 you need to just start over and say, Sovereign Lord, remember me again. He's faithful to do that. Or maybe you're here this morning, and you just simply need to praise the Lord for what He has done and is doing in your life. But just take time to reflect on who He is in your life. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you so much. For your word, thank you for all that you are doing and have done in our life. Lord, you are so faithful. Lord, when we read a story like Samson, it's so easy to see a man full of potential that could have been so much more, and yet, Lord, you still used him to save the Israelites. Lord, that is a reminder that you will use us despite us, Lord, despite our sins, Lord. And Lord, we don't want to just live in our sin or stay in our sin. We want to repent. We want to fully turn away, Lord. We want to flee from it and flee towards you. Lord, I just pray for anyone in here who may be struggling with a sin or just struggling with the relationship with you or, or with one another or anything, Lord, just speak to them. Lord, and as we prepare our hearts to receive communion, let us be reminded that um, you made a way when there was no way. So, Lord, as we sing.
couple more worship songs to you. You deserve so much more than what we could ever give you, but yet you receive our worship and praise. And all glory goes to you. In Christ's name, amen.